constellation. Look at that. She may have been wrecked by whatever destroyed the system. She was attacked. Ladies and gents, welcome back to another episode of the Fez Talks Podcast. I, of course, am your host, Fez. Today, we're talking about the Doomsday Machine with Roy from Roy's Tie-Dye Sci-Fi Corner. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Fez Talks with Roy from Roy's Tie-Dye Sci-Fi Corner. Roy, say hello. Hey, Fez. How are you today? I'm just dandy, and we're going to talk about one of your favorite episodes, the one with the space bugle. (laughs) This is one of my favorite episodes of classic Star Trek. Absolutely. The Doomsday Machine. As I recall, and as our listeners may recall, this is one of the first episodes that I remember you telling me that you saw, if not the first. So, for those of you who haven't heard the story, Roy, tell the story. Well, I can actually remember back in the day, now, classic Star Trek came into my life somewhere probably around 1973, could have even been 72, and I actually was introduced to it by my aunt, my aunt Franny, who's my mom's sister, because she was a huge William Shatner fan. And I actually remember watching classic Trek at my grandparents. And I remember her pointing out the TV guide and showing me, showing my dad, because we were talking about it and everything. But with this specific episode, the first time I actually saw it, I was on my way home from school and my parents lived in Bergen County, New Jersey and Wallington, New Jersey. There was a, like, I'll say a convenience store, but it wasn't a convenience store at the time, but it was kind of like a convenience store that was at a local strip mall where there was an A&P and it was like a candy store, best way to describe it. And in that candy store, there was a guy named Rich. He worked behind the counter and everything, but he had a TV set that was up pretty high. And I remember going in there and this episode was actually on. And the one thing that actually stood out for me was seeing Kirk in his wraparound tunic because he was in green. And 
it was a totally different uniform. And I had never seen that before. And I thought, you know, what's, what is this episode about? And I hung out in there for a few minutes and actually got to see another starship, which was so cool. And speaking of which, Fez, and I know we are on a podcast, but you will be able to appreciate this. Here is the wraparound tunic <laughs> that I actually have sealed in the bag. And I got back a couple of years ago. And I, um, I always thought that was the coolest uniform for Captain Kirk. And that was the second season wraparound tunic. And there's so much to talk about with this episode. And I'm like really excited about it. And there's so many first type of occurrences that take place in this episode. So this is really going to be a lot of fun to speak to you about this because I know how much of a diehard Star Trek classic fan you are. So this is going to be very, very interesting and a lot of fun. Well, you know that the second season wraparound uniform is my personal favorite as well. I do know that. <laughs> so can I buy it off of you now? <laughs> okay, so on a more serious note, this is the third Commodore we've met in the original series. Commodore Mendez, Commodore Stone, and we haven't gotten to Starker yet. He's in the next couple episodes in the Deadly Years, but we got Commodore Matthew Decker, the father of Captain Willard Decker from the motion picture, which I think, you know, we should definitely talk about at the end. But Talk about Decker. Talk about what did you feel when you, what presence did he bring to the episode before we get deep, deep into our thoughts about this thing? They say there's no devil, Jim, but there is a right out of hell. I saw it. Matt, where's your crew? On the third planet. There is no third planet. Don't you think I know that? There was, but not anymore. They called me, they begged me for help. 400 of them. I couldn't. I, I couldn't. <laughs> I mean, he brought a very strong presence. And I think that they're tr they, there's actually a buildup about him because when they find the constellation, there's a lot of subspace interference. So there's a lot of things that are jamming. One thing they didn't really talk about was life forms on board the ship. So, and that could be because of the, the interference that was being caused by the Doomsday Machine, which we had not seen at the very beginning, but we, we were seeing was a lot of rubble, a lot of remains of the planets that were in the system that they were coming into. And when they beam aboard and essentially find and they go through the corridors and they're finding pretty much wreckage and no people. It's like, what happened? It's like a big mystery. And Kirk even makes a comment. He can't imagine a man like Matt Decker abandoning the ship while his life support systems were still, you know, were intact. And Scotty makes the reference for them to go to the auxiliary control room, which speaking of which, probably be a lot of digression here, but this is another first for classic Star Trek as far as a new set. We had not seen 
auxiliary control room prior to this episode. And if memory serves correct, this was episode number 35, which is the, I think this was the fourth episode, or maybe I'm wrong, the sixth episode that was, was filmed for this, uh, for the second season. So you'd be right. It is the sixth episode that aired slash was filmed for the second season. And it's the 35th released of the original series. Okay. And when they come across him and they find him, he's a shell of the person that he was. I mean, he's the exact opposite of Kirk. I mean, he's in deep shock and he's traumatized. In fact, McCoy has to give him a stimulant to try to bring him out of it. And as it's going on, they play back a captain's log. And what's interesting is you hear Matt Decker in a very authoritative type of voice talking about what they've encountered and how they're going in to find out why the planets are breaking apart. And it reminds us that he definitely was a strong leader type. He was somebody just like Kirk. And what really hit me hard during that part of that introduction is Kirk is trying to get through to Matt Decker and he, he's trying to find out exactly what happened. And McCoy even says, you know, he's in a state of shock. And he starts going through and he starts talking about how they encountered this. And he, he says it was right out of hell. And then Kirk says, you know, Matt, where's your crew? And he's like, on the third planet. And he's like, there is no third planet. I mean, and then Matt says, don't you think I know that? There was, but not anymore. They called me, they begged me for help, all 400. And he's like, I couldn't, I couldn't. And he's, he's crying and he's, he's becoming uncomposed. When you watch that, Kirk actually looks at him and he, he feels the emotion coming from him. And he, William Shatner does, I, I have to, William Shatner is amazing. And what he does is he takes a step almost towards Matt, but then he stops himself. He can't do it. And it, it's, it's, it's very subtle, but it, it's very realistic. And it, it's just, it's, it's a moment that always stuck with me. And it's almost like Kirk is hurting seeing his friend that was on the same level as him, but has lost everything that he has of value, everything that he respects. I mean, for Kirk, his ship and his crew are his life. It's everything. And here is Matt Decker, who essentially was on the same plane as Kirk with that. And he's lost everything that Kirk would fear and would never want to lose. And it, it, it's just a very deep moment, but it's, it's wonderfully captured. And William Wyndham, his acting and his performance and everything he brings to this character is, is truly amazing. And, and he had done a lot of stuff. I think he had almost about 150 episodic television episodes under his belt. He had come from a series um, that was on with Inger Stevens. I think it was called The Farmer's Daughter, if I remember correctly. And it was only from one season, but he was a very accomplished actor. And it, 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 it wonderfully represented in his performance of, of Matt Decker. Me with Matt Decker, 
I saw all the things that you saw, but also this is the first time we've seen another real captain in Star Trek other than Kirk. Eventually we'll get Ronald Tracy and a couple of other captains and people who commanded starships and uh, science vessels and whatnot. But even throughout all of this and being in shock, Kirk says to Decker before McCoy takes him off the constellation that uh, Decker says to Kirk that he's not going to leave his ship. There's no ship to leave. It's a dead hulk. Um, and then eventually we get to the end where, you know, he's take in a real messed up way, he's taking responsibility for not saving his crew by taking that shellcraft at the end and trying to kill the thing. Um, I've always, I always, when I was a younger kid, thought it was weird that, you know, Decker did what he did and acted the way he acted. Because, you know, my, my, my model was Captain Kirk and to a lesser extent, Jean-Luc Picard. Um, but as I've gotten older and now having gone through you know, depression and all these other things, I can understand that point of view. I can understand wanting to make something right so bad that you're willing to destroy yourself for that right, making that that one thing right, if you can. Um, he was a tortured soul. And this character, I mean, there's a lot of, almost I'll say similarities and you could even say it's almost based on Captain Ahab who is going after the whale that destroyed his ship and you know he lost his leg as a result of it and he's it's it's for vengeance and nothing else matters and that's what's that's what happens to Decker and to your point, what you said earlier, too, when right before he departs from the constellation for the very last time, he doesn't want to go. And he says to Kirk, like you said, you know, I'm, I'm not leaving my ship. And then Kirk says, you know, there's no ship to leave. It's a dead hull. And then Decker, he, he was almost building himself up with, with energy when he was saying that, because it was almost like he had something. Because he lost everything. And that's that's part of the reason why he didn't want to leave. Because he lost his ship. His ship was destroyed. I mean, as Kirk said, it's, it's a dead hulk. But more importantly, he lost his crew. So that's why he was going to stay stay behind. And then when Kirk says that to him, he, he looks down. It's like he, he was defeated. And then Kirk says, well, take her in tow and I'll stay on board and get her ready. So it was almost like he was... First thing we're going to do is get you back to the Enterprise. Oh, no, I stay here. I'm not leaving my ship. There's no ship to leave. It's a dead hulk. We'll take her in tow. I'll stay on board and get her ready. You go back to the Enterprise with the doctor and let him help you. It's just that I I never lost a command before. 
trying to say, you know, we're going to bring her back. And Decker says, it's just that he'd never left, lost the command before. And then he, he, he's puts down, I believe he puts down the, the, the tapes that he was holding too. And he puts mm-hmm. them on to the table. Another beautiful choice by William Wyndham. Because what happens is later on, and we'll jump to that, when all this starts morphing and he starts, you know, going in the direction that he's going, he plays with those tapes, those the, the recorded tapes that are on, you see in, in, in Trek. And that was his choice as an actor. And it's a brilliant choice because he, he makes use of it. And it's almost like a prelude of what's going what's gonna to happen. And again, it's it's him leaving a part of himself behind on the constellation. It's 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 everything his has been lost, and then he just goes off with McCoy, and then they beam back to the Enterprise, and everything starts to go and unravel. So we've got two official versions of this episode, and I have seen a third. Do you have a preference whether you watch the original effects or the remastered for this episode? Because I know that a bunch of people, particularly for this episode, like the remastered effects. It's an excellent question. And I remember, I remember back, I think it was somewhere around 2005, 2006. That's, that's my recollection anyway, close to 15 years ago, which is crazy. When they started releasing these episodes and they were showing them with the newer version effects where they were they're essentially CGI. And this episode was going to be coming up to bat. I'll be honest with you, I was looking forward to it because this this episode for 1967, the visual effects were huge. I mean, it was incredible because we had, this is again, saying earlier there were a lot of firsts in this this episode and you just brought up the other the other first too that this is really the first time we see another starship captain i mean he's a commodore but he's the captain of the starship and this is the first time we have that taking place we actually as viewers get to see another starship besides the enterprise now granted it's it's been wrecked it's destroyed but how cool was that? And it's, it's and in and, and the serial number was NCC one zero one seven, which is kind of a rearrangement of one seven zero one, which we love for the Enterprise. But that opening shot of the constellation, and when we see it, and the wonderful score of music that goes along with it, it it's just it. I mean, it resonates in my mind. Now, going back to your original question. I do have an appreciation for the new effects. I do. But I also enjoy watching the original because the original is, it holds a special place where I would be very upset and I hope this never, ever happens. It shouldn't happen as far for me personally because I do own the Blu-rays and you can watch the original and you can watch the newer effects. I just hope there's never a day where the original disappeared because it that that would be a super peppy of mine to occur. Me, I prefer the original effects if I had 
only those two to choose from. But I've seen this Freck Enhanced is what it was called. And it was done by our very good friend, Darren Doctorman, who worked on the Star Trek, the motion picture director's edition in the late 90s. And we'll circle back to that later on again. But when I saw Darren's cut with his CGI, mind you that this was around that same time that they remastered the episodes. Yes, it was CGI starships and rubble and all this and the planet killer, but it was in the style of the original series effects, which is what I appreciate most about it. It wasn't, it, it was like those TOS effects modernized instead of trying to and I'm hesitating to say this because you know some people might take it the wrong way the remastered effects are dated now and I feel like they were dated then it it was like trying to bring the Nintendo 64 generation to Star Trek versus hey let's make this like a make it so it's classic. And that's how I feel about the, the remaster effects. Now, mind you, I'll go back and forth. Especially, like, I think this episode in particular serves better with, the, with updated effects because it's one of the few times that you actually get the Enterprise and another vessel in battle with something. Because most of our episodes in the original series don't happen on the Enterprise. They happen on a planet. So. Yeah, the new effects definitely serve service this episode. And to your, uh, to your point, 15 years have passed and the technology has, has changed so much that they are somewhat dated now when you're watching it. And that's, and that's part of the issue that you can see with a lot of the earlier CGI's, not that this is super early, but even going back further than 15 years, some of it has a, uh, and I, I almost, I'm a little hesitant to say it, but I'll say there's kind of a, I don't want to say cartoonish, but I think you might know if I'm by what I mean by saying that type of effect around it. And cartoonish might be a little bit too strong of a word, but it's it just the reality doesn't come through. I mean, when you're watching CGI, you tend to know that it, it's not real. But when you watch earlier forms of CGI, it's so blatant. It is. It is. And that's 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 the problem with it. I mean, I even wouldn't mind with what we used to do on New Voyages and Phase Two, like certain episodes it was the more grandiose CGI of the Enterprise and all that other stuff, which serves mostly served the story. Mm -hmm. But there were episodes that like Darren did. Darren did uh, the night, a night in 1969 version of To Serve All My Days, which had his model of the Enterprise, which I love because it, it she moved like the Enterprise did in the show. She fought like the Enterprise in the show. Like, 
the the camera angles and everything were just spot on and that's a digression from our from our doomsday machine but kind of sort of on the topic because i brought up darren um tell me what you remember most about this episode besides the bugle the story i mean it's it's a powerful story and it when i think back as a as a child or as a kid watching it i think it was the excitement the uh and the effects i mean that was a part of it i mean we were seeing the enterprise in battle and we were seeing the enterprise crippled so that was a huge piece of it and we were seeing somebody that was taking command taking over the enterprise and you know as as we get older and or as i got older and watched this episode you understand it more the psychology behind it and the frustration because it's it's almost like things happening everything happens in methodically but it, it's very frustrating because mccoy beams back with decker and this whole situation is happening where they're going to get kirk and the other crew members off the engineering staff and then it attacks and then the enterprise loses the transporter the transporter gets knocked out and they're trying to maintain their distance then the communications goes down so they can't get in contact with kirk so that piece is cut off because if that didn't happen the next part would have happened and that is finding out that this is actually going to be headed towards a civilization and it's going to essentially decimate that civilization just like it decimated these past solar systems and decker says to spock you can't let it get to rigel it'll kill millions of lives and spock being spock says you know he's aware of the rigel's you know, population, but he's also stressing how their ship has been is been wounded, and one ship cannot combat it. He's, he's he's essentially just telling Decker, you know what, we have to get the Constellation crew, and we have to warn Starfleet Command to prepare for this. What's coming? But Decker now has the means to do what he's going to do because they can't communicate with Kirk, whose ship it is, and B, he's the senior officer. And he's going to use that to his advantage because nothing else matters. And he's on a hunt to, to take this, I'll say, device down and destroy it as it killed his crew. And that's what he's fixated on. And he's playing by, he's playing by the regulation book. And some people, I mean, if you really want to delve, and this is a point that was actually, I actually, I can't take credit for it because I actually didn't think of it. But one of the things I've heard is why didn't McCoy just relieve him because he was in a state of shock when he found him. And you could, you know, he could have gone that angle. And he, McCoy tried to when he said, when Spock said about relieving him under section, I think he said section C, meaning under regulation. Well, Spock. Unfortunately, Starfleet Order 104, Section B leaves me no alternative. Paragraph 1A clearly states... To blazes with regulations! You can't let him take command when you know he's wrong! If you can certify Commodore Decker medically or psychologically unfit for command, 
I can relieve him under Section C. I'll certify that right now. We'll also be asked to produce your medical records to prove it. Now, you know I haven't had time to run an examination on him. Then your statement would not be considered valid. So with that, he doesn't. And then he says, you may leave the bridge, doctor. And then he basically dismisses him. And McCoy is out. We don't see McCoy for the rest of the episode. He he, he does what he does and he, he's off on his way. And they pan around and he looks. He, again, William Wyndham choices. He circles in the chair and he's just like looking at everybody in every position and every and all eyes are on him because he's he's taking charge. And he is now going after the whale, so to speak. And he's not going to let anybody getting in his way. And Spock just... Spock is playing by the book, even though he knows it's wrong, but he's going by the regulations. And meanwhile, Kirk with the engineering team is on the constellation and they're trying to get that ship to move. So all the pieces have been set for him to go on his vengeance against the doomsday machine. And going back to your original question, uh, question to me is how did I feel watching this? I mean, it's a lot of anxiety because you see, you can even see that this is, is happening along the way and you know the direction it's going in. And it, when it does, it's like, oh, you know, what's next? What's going to happen to the Enterprise? And there's a lot of cl close moments too. Yeah. Uh, what I think about, like, during this whole entire episode, anxiety, probably the best emotion, like you said, because you don't know what's going to happen to Kirk and the engineering crew. You don't know what's going to happen to the Enterprise. And I felt for Spock. I really did, because Spock knows that Decker is unfit to command the Enterprise. And, but he knows his duty under regulations. So he won't step over that line. But the moment that Decker does, and... Kirk gives him the okay. I'm giving you my personal authority as captain of the Enterprise to take over the take over the ship. And then he does. Because he, and that's in that whole, and that's a little bit ahead, but that whole scene is also brilliant because essentially Decker takes on the doomsday machine and essentially almost causes the same scenario to happen to the Enterprise that happened to the Constellation. He's attempting to destroy it. He can't get through through its hull because it's solid neutronium. And Spock emphasizes, you know, a single ship can't combat it. And at one point, it's being pulled in. And meanwhile, Kirk is watching. Scotty. I, don't, I still don't know what we're doing. We're moving. The Enterprise isn't. Maybe that thing will see us. Let the Enterprise go. Well, we had some phasers. Phasers? You've got them. I have one bank recharged. Scotty, just earned your pay for the week. Stand by. Scotty being Scotty, got the ship's impulse engines back online. He also has one phaser bank recharged. And this is another instance where we get to hear Kirk say to Scotty, you know, you just earned your pay for the week, which is, you know, it, it's, a, it's a lighter moment because of all the drama that's going on. And 
if it wasn't for that, the Enterprise would have had the same fate as the Constellation in the sense of almost being destroyed. And then things start to turn around because the communications, they're able to pierce the interference, at least locally, as Lieutenant Palmer says. And speaking of which, kind of jumping a little bit, this is another first. We are introduced to Lieutenant Palmer in communications. And this is the only, this is the only time with the exception well, she, yes, she is, she is in um, the third season episode, which is unfortunately not one of my favorites, but it's the way to eat it. But this is, I believe, the second time in a Star Trek episode where we've actually had a communication person in the communication, communication station other than Lieutenant Uhura. And this would be a great trivia question. Actually, I think it's like the third. Do Alden, you, Alden Palmer, uh, and then um, what's his face? He was the navigator in um, Mud Women. I can't very, remember. Very good. And that was, uh, I believe his name was Lieutenant Goodwin. And he was in the episode, I think that was his name. He was in the episode Miri. And that's when he was at the communication station. Mm-hmm. Very good, Fez. Excellent. Good job, man. I knew, if anybody, if, there's other people I know who would know the answer to that. But I'm I'm very impressed that you did know the answer to that. So, um, Star Trek Star Trek Encyclopedia. Absolutely. So you just you know reinforce that. Um, but yeah, and he was in Meds Women, and he was also in The Enemy Within as well. Mm-hmm. Those are the three episodes he did. But this is the first time since then that we had Lieutenant Palmer, and then you're right too because Barbara Baldwin. She was in the very last episode, Turnabout Intruder, too. Lieutenant Lisa, I think, was her name in that episode, yeah. if I remember. But anyway, with that, another first, which is really cool, because I thought I thought she did a really great job. And Michelle Nichols was unavailable, from what I remember. I think she, because she was a professional singer, and she had a singing engagement. So it was, it would have been nice to have seen Lieutenant Palmer in other episodes, besides only the other one that she did and in the third season, The Way to Eden. So with that, we have that another first, but it's just that when the communications get restored and now Spock is able to communicate with Kirk and Kirk is surprised that Matt Decker is answering instead of Spock. Enterprise to Kirk. Commodore Decker speaking. Matt, what's going on? Give me Mr. Spock. I'm in command here, Jim. What happened to Spock? Nothing. I assumed command according to regulations. Since your first officer was reluctant to take aggressive action against the... I mean, you're the lunatic who's responsible for almost destroying my ship? You are speaking to a senior officer, Kirk. Give me Spock. I told you I am in command here, according to every rule in the book, Captain. If you have anything to say at all, you will say it to me. There's only one thing I want to say to you, Commodore. Get my ship out of there. Mr. Spock, ship status. Commodore. Down here. And he has it on a very pleasant level. He's like, you know, Matt, you know, Where's, you know, where's Spock? And he's like, well, he's like, I'm in command here, Jim. And then he's like, 
what happened to Spock, you know? And that's when things start to unravel. And Decker, Matt Decker, in his response to wanting Kirk, Kirk wants to speak to Spock and Spock even says to him, you know, Commodore. And then he, he says, down here. And it was almost degrading the way he did that because it was, you know, telling Spock, okay, you can come down here and you can talk to the captain. And here, Spock is in such a, an authoritative type of position when he is second in command of the Enterprise. And he, we all know that he can handle it, but it's just that with Decker going through the actions that he has, it's again, set the stage for all this negativity because he has one thing on his mind and that is to take down the Doomsday Machine. And things just start to unravel. And it's a beautiful scene cutting back and forth with Kirk and Matt. And what started out is almost like a friend talking to a friend turns into something else where Kirk is outraged. And he says, you know, you're the lunatic who almost destroyed my ship. <laughs> and, you know. There's he, one thing I want to say to you, Commodore. Get my ship out of there. Exactly. And get me Mr. Spock. <laughs> it's just it's just really, really well done. And essentially, Spock relieves Decker of his command using regulations, using, I'll say against him, but not even against him. He's just following the book, but he's using the same book that Decker used in order to take command. And it's the same book that has him be relieved of command. And can, it, can it we talk about that interaction at the end of that? I don't recognize your authority to relieve me. You may file a formal protest with Starfleet Command, assuming we survive to reach a star base. But you are relieved. Commodore, I do not wish to place you under arrest. You wouldn't dare. You're bluffing. Vulcans never bluff. Also, another interesting piece of trivia, and this is something that I picked up on, says, when you watch this episode, there's, and this is something that doesn't happen very often, but there are two security guards that are on the Enterprise right from the very beginning and, and on the bridge, which is appropriate because what happens is Spock is going to use them to make sure that Decker gets relieved. Interesting enough, up until the point where that scene happens, the security officer that is not African-American, that is positioned, himself, positioned on the bridge, he changes. It goes from being almost like a, I'll say he was a stand-in or he was an extra. And then what they do is when he, Mr. Montgomery, in fact, he changes to a different actor. And it's something I picked up on a few, 
not too not too many years ago, but the next time you watch it, maybe and maybe you already noticed it because I know you have an incredible sense of detail. So I don't know if you've actually caught this or not. But if you haven't, and even for our listeners, when you go to rewatch this episode, take notice of that. It is not the same actor or security guard that is there one moment. And then when he comes forth, as Spock tells him to, when he's essentially calling the bluff, as you just said, on Matt Decker, it's a different actor. And I, I thought that was pretty interesting. It is pretty interesting. I've known that for a while. In fact, I think I brought that up to somebody. Oh, God, it must have been the Trek Conderoga that we that I was at, the one and only that I was at. But I wanted to talk about real quick. Why didn't Spock just send both of them? I mean, like, yes, Mr. Montgomery, please see to the, the Commodore has an appointment in sick bay. <laughs> I mean, I, if it were me, knowing how, think, knowing how my mind works, something bad was going to happen. Something yeah. bad always happens when you just send one. <laughs> At least he was a red shirt that didn't die. <laughs> That's very true. But statistically speaking, more gold shirts died in the original series than red shirts. <laughs> when you think about it. When you think about it, this is true too. Um, I want... It's funny. Doomsday Machine... There's a, there's a couple of episodes in the original series where they got their own music and then they recycled music. This is one of those episodes. It's so like iconic that I think that, you know, when I listen to my original series music, not only can I think of what scene this this music came from in right. the Doomsday Machine, I can think about what what um what other muse what other episode scenes this music has been in after Doomsday Machine. The big one that stands out course is obsession because it's mm -hmm. very much it's very much alike very similar stories the only difference is kirk's rationale for going after it was not it, yes he had a lot of guilt and he he was appearing to be heading into that direction that commodore decker was however he was absolutely right about the cloud the vampire cloud and we're digressing that's okay because it, it, it all ties together right mm -hmm. <laughs> and a lot of similarities but it's just he especially when it came out that it was going to reproduce and there's a pivotal scene in that episode in in the conference room the briefing room when spock says to mccoy it turned an attack doctor meaning that there was a lot of truth to what kirk was fearing and then they find out that it was going to that planet where it was going to separate and, and reproduce. And he said, not just by into two halves, but by thousands. So all of that just reinforced that what Kirk was doing was for the appropriate reasons, not to say that he wasn't motivated and he wasn't being remembered of everything that happened on the USS Farragut, but still he was definitely on the right track in regards to his command decisions. Coincidentally, going back to my original question, which we digressed from, 
Um, the scene, or yes, that scene where Spock and McCoy slash Decker, you know, have it right before Decker takes command and then Spock and Decker right before Spock retakes command are two things that I think of quite frequently. But just the ending of the episode, just the gentleman, I suggest you beat me aboard. Um, and then Kirk coming back to the Enterprise and then you get this all, all this sense of relief. The captain's back and then all you hear is, welcome home, Captain. Um, yeah, you brought up, and you just brought up an, an, another uh, wonderful point. I mean, there was so much excitement in this episode from beginning to end and the ending, what a climax. I mean, with the countdown, of, you know, Scotty even says to Kirk, you know, he's programmed the impulse engines to blow. And he said 30, you know, 30 seconds later, poof. And one of the trivia things too, that's which has always been that that's where Scotty kind of loses his, his Scottish brogue when he says that. Gentlemen, beam me aboard. Captain, transporter is out again. Mr. Scott, 20 seconds to detonation. Mr. Scott. Mr. Scott. Try inverse phasing. whole thing is and you know it's going to happen he says once it's activated there's no way to stop it and once kirk turns that on it's going and what's interesting too is you can almost hear like a clock ticking in the back there there is there is yeah and it, it it adds to that moment and just when you know they're they're trying to bring him on and then the transporter goes out it's and then you know like you just said you know gentlemen beam me aboard and he's like you can't captain <laughs> transporters, transporters out and he's like telling Mr. Scott and then Scotty is like looking up and he's by the Jeffrey's tube and he's like, oh, and he's going up the, you know, the, the steps and everything. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. I don't know, Mr. Kyle. <laughs> it's, it's awesome stuff. Um, another thing that is a first two with this is that, and I, I just lost my train of thought in regards to this is the enterprise being seen in a scene with the sister starship 
I mean, we never saw that before either. I mean, that is just like, so cool. I mean, granted, the optical effects and everything, they the way they repositioned it. But the very beginning of the episode, when the Enterprise, they have that that scene that I think it first originated in the Corbinite maneuver. And it's it's the rear of the Enterprise. And then you're just seeing the constellation just like hanging out there. It's just it's just amazing. Pit bashing at it at its finest. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that model came from AMT, a three in literally like in back in the day it was a three dollar model. So, the model of the Enterprise that had been released back in maybe six months earlier, maybe at the end of nineteen sixty six, the beginning of nineteen sixty seven, came to the rescue for this episode because that's what they utilized and. They actually made us a, a, a very, very small model, so small that it could go into the Doomsday Machine, and that was that for the Constellation. So AMT really, really did a lot for, for the classic series because they were involved with even the Galileo Seven in regards to building the mock-up and and having the uh, the shuttlecraft. So it's just a lot of cool stuff, you know. The transporter is a mighty finicky piece of technology to be risking your life on. <laughs> you are the quote master. I love it. <laughs> well, there's so many things I can quote out of this episode, and it, I haven't seen this episode in, in such a long time. But there are things that I know you know that that just pop into your head, like there was, but not a bar. 400 of them, they called me, they begged me for help. I couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> Again, it, it's it's such a strong moment. And it's it William Wyndham was did such a wonderful job with this portrayal. And interesting enough, he was not the first choice for this. It was an actor by the name of Robert Ryan, who they wanted to do for this role. And he was known for playing, I'll say, essentially hard, hardcore bad guys and just had a very strong presence. And not to say that William Wyndham didn't, but two totally different actors. And Norman Spinrad, who wrote this episode, had him envisioned when he was writing this episode that it was going to be Robert Ryan. But unfortunately, or fortunately now, I would say, he wasn't available and he wanted to do Star Trek. There were a lot of actors that wanted to do classic Star Trek. And as a result of that, William Wyndham was cast because of, I believe it was Mark Daniels, because Mark Daniels directed this episode and he had worked with William Wyndham and other, and other things. And that was why he was brought to this. And William Wyndham had been quoted as saying that he was, um, he could, you know, because he could literally cry on, on man, I'll say. I mean, he was called uh, Willie the Weeper. I think he used to call himself because if they needed him to cry, he could do it. And I mean, that's something for an actor to be able to do because you have to put yourself into the state and there's a method in all different types and, and what have you, whatever you utilize. But again, he brought it to the, to the screen and it was done very, very well. So let's wrap this thing up. Overall, if you had to give it a rating, one through 10, 10 being the best of Trek, and then 
any closing thoughts you want to give to the Doomsday Machine? Bones? Did you ever hear of a Doomsday Machine? No, I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. It's a weapon built primarily as a bluff. It's never meant to be used. So strong, it could destroy both sides of the war. Something like the old H-bomb was supposed to be. That's what I think this is. A doomsday machine that somebody used in a war uncounted years ago. They don't exist anymore, but the machine is still destroyed. Uh, yes. I probably, well, oh, and I just thought of another first time item that I wanted to tell you about. And I, it went out of my head before and I kind of went back with the Enterprise and the uh, Constellation. One other thing we did not talk about, Fez, and then I will answer your question about the rating, no is that this is also the first time we have the crew walk in front of the view screen and right. not where it's just, we're seeing the standard shot that was set up in the Corbomite maneuver, where you have Sulu in the in the helmsman position, and then you have an extra, who I believe, I think it may have even been the actor that played, Lieutenant Hadley, and I can't think of the, uh, his name at the moment, where they photographed him. And then in the second season, they did it with Chekhov, and then they had him, the other guy, in the, in the helmsman position. Kirk and Spock, Kirk walks past it in the opening, or right, not in the opening. It was right after the teaser in in the uh, the first beginning, scene. beginning of Act One. Yeah, and then at the end, when he's with Spock, he crosses it, and this was huge because they didn't have CGI then, and they literally used back screen projection. And Mark Daniels was trying to get this shot. I believe it was in five days specifically. They usually shot these episodes in six, and he set that up and that was the first time we actually got to see that. I mean, we did see the view screen for a moment with the actors and it was in the enemy within, but the screen is actually white if you're watching it. And it's mm -hmm. only for a moment at the end of the episode. And we got to see this again with Mark Daniels when he directed Spock's brain. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful effect and it works extremely well. So it was another first. This episode had so many firsts and it was just a action-packed episode. And I would say it's definitely a 9.5 for me. I, 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 it almost encroaches on a 10. It is in my, I would say, probably top five, top 10 favorite episodes of the series. I mean, I guess I'm being really nitpicky if I say it, but I don't even give it a 10. But I would say between a 9.5 and a 10. It's it's in that realm. It just it works on so many levels. I'm it's a fan favorite from everybody that I know personally. And it just brings so much to the table. The acting is 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 very well done and it it's just the music is incredible. And my my friend Ross who co-hosts with me, I mean he's very much into he's a music music extraordinaire. And we always joke about this and he, he jokes about this with other people because some people say that John Williams was inspired for Jaws because of the similarities. I mean, I don't know if that's true or not. You could, what you can say though, is there is a lot of similarities with this music and Jaws, 
with the dun, 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 and that's all the music I will hum. <laughs> I don't want to scare any of the viewers off. But with the pacing, I'll say there is a similarity. But of course, music is music, and of course, music can be similar, it can be different. But again, to answer your question, I would have to say between a 9.5 and a 10. Now, the big question for me is how does this episode stand for you? And in regards to where it is on your top 10 list, is it in your top 10 lists? And what kind of rating do you give it? Well, to piggyback on your first conversation, this is the one and only time that that greet and wrap around makes an appearance in the original series because it's not even the final product of the second season wraparound uniform because of the black uh, collar that's not there. Right. So, and I always wondered why it wasn't there. It's because that was a prototype that they were like, yes, go take that, go put it on, go. Um, the Doomsday Machine is one of my all-time favorite original series episodes. It cracks my top five. For all the reasons that you mentioned, and it was one of the first episodes I remember seeing, shockingly enough. I think I told you last time, the first episode I remember seeing is the Enterprise incident. Yes, I do remember that. Um, I've always been a sucker for like a good story, which you know. Um, this is a good story. And even if you, you know, did a Trek enhanced of this episode, I would still watch it over 95 to 99% of TV shows today because of the story, because of the pacing, the acting is spot on. It, it's very believable, but I can say that about most Star Trek episodes, even the ones that are, that are kind of silly. Right. As for, to a rating, it is like in between a nine and a 9.5. 10 is reserved for a city on the edge of forever, which sometimes I don't even consider a Star Trek episode just because it's so out of left field when it comes to Star Trek. Hmm. but it's in my top five it's actually number four no i will not tell you what the other three ahead of it are <laughs> although i guess i did tell we won <laughs> um that's it for the doomsday machine today but since i have you here and the the news came out last week how do you feel about a blu-ray slash 4k restoration of the motion picture director's edition headed up by our friend Darren Docterman, who actually worked post-production on the original director's edition. I am super psyched and it could not be in better hands. That is going to be incredible. Star Trek, the motion picture. That movie, I wish that the director's cut had been the version we saw in the movie theater for, and I hate to say, well, and, and this is because of age, or else you would have been there. 
I'll say I wish it was the version that I had seen in the movie theater back in December of 1979 when it first premiered. There was so much anticipation with that movie. And that that could be a, a discussion for another episode. But answering your question, Fez, I I really, really think that this is just going to be that much more exciting for viewers of that movie. And I think, like I said, it couldn't be in better hands with Darren. And one of my all-time favorite scenes, in fact, when we got a large screen television about four years ago, I put that episode, that movie in. And the very first scene that I watched was when Scotty brings Kirk over to the Enterprise. And it 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 was at night and I just, you know, turned off all the lights and just, you know, powered it up. And I I'm 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 super excited about it. It's it's gonna be great. And I think it's gonna bring a lot more viewers to the table that haven't seen it in a long time. And I can only anticipate you have the same reaction, if not even on a higher level, which believe me, my appreciation is pretty high. <laughs> I will say this. Uh it could not Darren, for those of you who don't know, Darren Doctorman worked with us on Star Trek New Voyages, both as a director and did some post-production. And for the episode, which never got released, um, Bread and Savagery was the uh, proconsul. Mm. Um, Darren is a massive Star Trek fan. Uh, Darren and I, when we have gotten together, whether it be for the set tour or when we used to film episodes, we would do dueling Shatners. <laughs> um, his Star Trek knowledge rivals that of myself and our friend James Colley, who runs the Star Trek sets in upstate New York. I could not be more thrilled that this is happening. In fact, as we're saying this, I'm, I read that they're doing 4K for the motion picture, all, all the movies now. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's great. Um, they're doing the first four as a set that's coming out in like September or something. Mm -hmm. Then the next set is going to be uh, five, six, and seven to conclude the original series. And then I'm assuming they're going to go uh, eight, nine, ten to end next gen. But the director's edition for the motion picture is going to come out sometime next year. And what I'm hoping is that it will get a theatrical release. And if it does, I want to gather as many of us that are here in the Northeast meet up somewhere and go see it. Because I, every time I've gone to see a Star Trek movie, whether it be the J.J. Abrams movies that I do not care for or you know, the next-gen movies, which I, I saw all of them in the theaters. I was never with, you know, I, my, my family are Star Trek fans, but they're not Star Trek fans to my level. Right. Where, where we can geek out. That's the one thing I'll say about, like, all the original series movies. I wish that I saw them in the theaters because I know, having seen Batman movies in the theater, seeing James Bond in the theater, there's nothing like seeing a movie in the movie theater. Yeah, just, there, there just isn't. 
it doesn't nothing compares to that it really doesn't um now did you hear that they are planning to release star trek 4 the voyage home in the movie theaters for i think it's going to be two days i think it's in august i think it's if i remember correctly it's the 19th and i believe the 22nd of august and it's for the 35th anniversary which is crazy to think that that movie came out 35 years ago that blows me away to be honest i did but that's not like one of the movies that i'd be itching to see in the theater mm. wrath of khan yeah the motion picture and probably star trek 6 are, yeah. are, are are the ones that i hadn't seen in the theaters that you know to me are like the big ones three four and five were all done basically by the tv division of paramount and to me it shows in 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 quality at least to me now grant you i know that star trek 2 was also done by the tv division but at least the way it was shot the story lends itself more to the big screen than any of those that I just mentioned. I, I remember the anticipation of Star Trek, the motion picture. I also remember the anticipation with Star Trek II, the Wrath of Khan. I remember being a, I think it was a sophomore in high school. I remember it was a Friday and it was June 4th of 1982. And interesting enough, the movie that premiered that same night <laughs> was Poltergeist. And all my friends were going to go see Poltergeist. And I went with my mom to go see Star Trek II, The Rapicon. And it was a local movie theater called the Easton Eric, which is no longer there. But it, I, I live in New Jersey. But right across the bridge, literally like five miles away, is Pennsylvania. And we went to see it. And I'll never forget that. And it was in the large theater because they had one that was a smaller one. And then they had the second one, which was the, the bigger one. But that would be... That is a wonderful movie to see on the big screen. And they re-showed it, uh, I think I saw it in the last 10 years on the big screen. I had the opportunity to see it again. And to your point, you know, you watching movies on television or in a different type of venue other than a movie theater is enjoyable. But with, with what you said, there is nothing like seeing it on the big screen. So I, I do hope that they do do that next year because I think that would be wonderful if we have the opportunity to see Star Trek The Motion Picture again. If you'd seen it, you'd know the whole thing's a weapon. It must be. What does it look like? Well, it's it's miles long with a with a maw that could swallow a dozen starships. It destroys planets, chops them into rubble. Well, what is it? An alien ship or is it alive? Or is Both or neither. I don't know. So I want to thank Roy again for hopping onto the podcast to talk to me about the Doomsday Machine and the recent news of the first four original series Star Trek films being mastered into 4K as well as the remastering and update of the Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition in Blu-ray and in 4K. Catch Roy around the universe... On his tie-dye sci-fi corner, Fridays at 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, and every other Sunday also at 7 Eastern Standard Time. Make sure you also check out Mike Rizzo and Mary Beth Rakowski with Sci-Fi Distilled. This week, 
Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan with yours truly. And they've got a whole bunch of other things that are up in the air. So make sure you check them out and subscribe to both of my friends. They are both on Facebook Live for their shows, but Sci-Fi Distilled has their anchor podcast just like I do. So you can catch them on reruns on Facebook or you can check the audio version of the podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. And also you can get this one wherever you get your podcast: Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and of course Anchor. And to get a hold of us, you can do it either the old-fashioned way with email, feztalks at gmail.com, on Facebook at feztalks-podcast, or Instagram and Twitter at feztalks. Until next time, my fellow listeners, live long and prosper. Ironic, isn't it? Way back in the 20th century, the H-bomb was the ultimate weapon, their doomsday machine. And we used something like it to destroy another doomsday machine. Probably the first time such a weapon has ever been used for constructive purposes. Appropriate, Captain. However, I can't help wondering if there are any more of those weapons wandering around the universe. Well, I certainly hope not. I found one quite sufficient. Mm-hmm.